Over the next few weeks, we're going to be telling some stories of the church. In previous centuries, churches used uh, stained glass windows to tell the stories of the Bible. Today we can use video, but it's the stories that are important for understanding our identity as the people of God. So we're going to look at the narratives of four different churches in the New Testament, as well as the uh, bigger overarching story of God's people in the Bible. And the plan is to hear the stories and then discuss them in a small group to help us all understand the foundations that our church is building on, right? the values that we're building with, and the vision of church life that we are building to. But to start with, I thought it would be good to tell some of our own story, as well as that of the family of churches that we belong to. So how did our church get started? Well, here is Dave Zeely, followed by Henry Cooley, to tell us the story. Hello, uh, Ian asked me if I'd just share the beginnings of our fellowship and, the, and where our DNA came from. And so I thought I'd set the scene for, for what life was like in um, around 1969 in the United States. 1969, Woodstock happened. Uh, on campus where we were, rebellion everywhere, drugs everywhere. To, to, to give you an example, when I was in high school, the worst thing you could do is chew gum, and you got sent to the principal's office. When I got to campus, the first thing we learned was what to do when the state police raided your dorm and that was flush all your drugs down the down the toilet it was it was a very interesting time rebellion nothing people stopped going to church young people churches were really despairing over losing so many kids so many young people and everything but they were too busy rebelling about everything and that's that's the setting for what, what happened at, at dartmouth just before it was happening at dartmouth things started happening on the west coast of, 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 of hippies and, and, and people becoming Christians. And um, we read about it, but, and, and it just started happening around where we were. It just started happening all over New England at the same time. And this happened in 1971. There were no Christians at Dartmouth. Dartmouth was founded to preach the gospel to the Indians, and it stopped doing that within a few years. And it hadn't had anything Christian forever. And uh, then these, it, we, this group started, five people. I was their first convert. And um, after, after that first convert, we, we were up to five, and uh, three of them decided not to come back. So now we had two. Now that's really growth. And we knew at that point, if we didn't, if we didn't do everything we had in us, Christianity be wiped out again at Dartmouth. So I don't know how we did it. We made a newspaper, we handed it out to everybody. The front page was Man Becomes Christian at Dartmouth, and that was me. And we handed out this newspaper and we grew to be about 30 people. We grew 30 people the first year, 60 people the next year. We're about 250 people in about five years. At that time, we thought of ourselves as we lived in the midst of a miracle on the edge of disaster. Because we knew any time Christianity at Dartmouth could be wiped out and and well we just had to grow we had to do had to grow and then we had this other problem we were losing people almost well not quite as fast as we were gaining them because they were graduating and these were people who would write back after they left said 
we haven't found a good church. We haven't found a good church anywhere. And we're drying up. And I kept thinking, here I am. We're working to build these people as Christians. And now they go out and they go to dead churches and they start dying. And I kept thinking, what can we do to keep, to keep these people alive and things? And at the same time, we had a real vision for, for missions. Henry Cooley, when he first became a Christian, he and others kept thinking, yeah, we'll send a team to France. I mean, that sounded exciting, too. And uh, we'll send a team to France. So we always had this idea we're going to send missionaries and things. It never dawned on us to church plant. Then one day, I went to a conference in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, where um, they said if every church in New England doubled in size, we'd still be the most unchristian part of the country. And that they said the answer is, is to plant churches. I thought, yeah, that's the answer. Every every year we have a crop of people that have grown and, are, and, are, and, and have become leaders. We could start planting churches. And so we came back and we did. We started planting churches. We sent the first one to Amherst, Mass, where UMass was. And we sent the second one to, to UNH. And, and we did things from there and things. But, you know, that same problem came up because we're sending out now, if I say our best, that's that's kind of an insulting to the people who stayed behind. We sent out good people, and we and we had to constantly. So we sent out good people, and they had to raise up leaders, and the the original church had to keep raising up leaders. We always had that same problem. Now, having said that, I want to just tell you some some things that that became part of our DNA back at that time. One was prayer. We prayed. We prayed at our quiet times. We prayed at meals. I love seeing people still praying at meals. We prayed when we met each other on the street. But the most important thing is, is we had a noon prayer. We prayed at noon every day. And everybody tried to be there. If you couldn't be there, you couldn't wait to talk to people. Because the first half of it is we just shared all the answers that we had from prayer from the day before. And then the second half, we just prayed. And it was always, so-and-so got healed, so-and-so became a Christian, things like that. Prayer is a big, big thing. Second part of our DNA was we gave ourselves to growth and unity. By growth, I mean personal growth. We had quiet times. We, had, um, we, we believed we were our brother's keepers. We knew we had to keep each other alive. So we shared the books we were reading. We shared, we encouraged it. When we saw each other, we laid hands on each other and stirred up the spirit. We prayed for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Actually, we didn't have to pray in the beginning very much. The Holy Spirit just fell on people all over the place all the time. So we laid hands on them. We had morning worship. When I say morning worship, I think it was six o'clock in the morning. It was me and a bunch of women at first, but the men started joining us and things because we really wanted to teach worship. That's how we learned. I still remember the day that we first raised our hands in worship. I almost burst into tears that it had happened. But another thing that we did is we had communion every week. And the way we had communion is we took chunks of bread and shared with each other. We'd break a priest off and share and pray for that person. And that person would pray for us. And you know what? That can really, it's very hard to harbor bad things in your heart when you just prayed with somebody and they prayed for you and you just shared. It was very hard. It kept us united working together. And the third thing I would say that it did, it gave us a real need or a, 
habit of an aggressive lifestyle. I say aggressive. We could say proactive. We could say radical. But it was forward-looking. It was like we always had to be doing God's work wherever we were. So it meant we invited people. So we went out witnessing all the time. We went out... Um, uh, we were looking forward. We wanted to know what God was doing in the world. We wanted to be a part of it. And, um, and so I'd like to... I'll just end by saying we were excited about a few things. We were excited about just being together. We were excited about worshiping. We were excited about inviting people to come in along with us as we followed Jesus. We were excited to hear what God was doing all over the world. And we were excited to be a part of his kingdom and be a part of, and do our part to what he was doing all over the world. And that's the beginning of our church. It was 1982 and the Dartmouth Church decided to send out another church plant. Uh, a group of us responded and we ended up with uh, 11 people uh, on a team to come to Durham and UNH to plant a church in the seacoast here. We had two married couples, seven uh, singles, some recent Dartmouth grads, some just uh, single community members. We banded together. Uh, in the end of August, we, we all caravan down and uprooted our lives and, and re responded to, to God's call and uh, moved to, to Durham, uh, not knowing what we would do or where we would go, but uh, trusting that God would lead us. So our vision was to plant a church uh, on a college campus that combined the youth of students and the zeal of students with the maturity and wisdom of community members, uh, the oldest of whom were 30 or, or younger, and uh, which, uh, looking back, was uh, a profound uh, thing that we thought, but can remember in those early days, just calling out to God desperately and then uh, working incredibly hard. We passed out uh, flyers and, and, uh, and students came. It was so refreshing to, to see these young students who uh, had never seen a church like, like this. And, and uh, I recall uh, a time going th through uh, our membership class with some students in a, in a college dorm and uh, just talking about church and what is church like? And they, uh, they were amazed. It's like, we, we never thought about this. Church isn't a... Uh, we always thought church was a, a meeting that you went to on, on Sundays, but this is, this is different. And you know, we, we had talked about how the scripture taught, has uh, 64 one another's in it. Love one another, care for one another, uh, lay our lives down for one another. Uh, and you can't do those on, uh, on a Sunday meeting. And um, so just seeing them catch the vision for church and what is involved in there, uh, they loved it. It was exciting seeing that. Uh, I remember uh, one time we had a, a young woman who, she was a, the first woman that we baptized. Uh, her father had broken his leg and, and they heated with wood. So we went uh, to their house about an hour away and uh, we stacked their wood. Uh, he was amazed that, that we would do that kind of thing. Um, God blessed uh, us. Uh, after six months, we were financially self-sufficient and we had previously asked people to, to support us. Um, we sent a letter saying, 
thank you so much for, for uh, contributing and giving. Uh, we don't need it anymore. Please stop giving. And you can imagine some of the parents of, of um, team members who received that letter who'd been giving. They had never heard anything with a, from a charity that said, please stop giving us money. Um, so those early days were exciting. The most exciting thing we ever did, the most terrifying thing that we ever did, but also the most gratifying, uh, just seeing lives touched and changed of these, these young students. Um, as time went on, the church grew, and eventually we were involved with other church planting initiatives. Uh, Dave Hill moved from, from Amherst, where he had previously church planted uh, the, in 1981, and he moved to Boston. We sent half a dozen people down there to, to help support that uh, and be a part of that. And they're still there today. But eventually we decided that we needed to be connected with a bigger organization. We needed more support. We needed, we needed more help. We needed fellowship of, of other churches. Uh, we were tired of being uh, on, our, on our own. And so when we uh, were looking, we contacted New Frontiers and Terry Virgo, one of the founders of, of New Frontiers, um, happened to be spending a couple years in uh, Missouri. And so he came and it was so refreshing talking with him, hearing about New, New Frontiers and just realizing, oh, they're just like us. Uh, have the same values, have the same vision, same uh, uh, heart for God and, and for uh, reaching the world, and, but they actually do, have done it better than us, and uh, we realized they could really help us. Shortly after joining New Frontiers, we had a group of, of our, our members who had a heart for Portsmouth and began meeting uh, down there. and. Uh, Eventually, uh, we knew that they needed leadership, so we contacted Ian and Emma Ashby, and so they moved and uh, were part of that and, and to, to lead what was Harbor Church then. So Emma and I arrived in America with our four children in September of 2002. But before I bring you up to date, let me just quickly share the story of New Frontiers, which is the family of churches that our church belongs to. You know, I became a Christian in a New Frontiers church in London. I was uh, 20 years old. Uh, it was 1983. And I, along with a number of other arts students, including Emma, started attending a Baptist church, which was experiencing something of a spiritual rebirth as people were getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And that kind of was happening all across the UK at that time, just as it had been in America. It was a time of spiritual renewal, as we heard from Dave Zeely. And a number of those churches in London and in the southeast of England began relating to one another under the leadership of a man called Terry Virgo. They actually weren't called New Frontiers yet, but the pastors would gather regularly to pray together. And like Henry Cooley and others here in the US, they had a vision to restore the church to New Testament values, you know, with joyful worship and biblical teaching, with prayer and fellowship and serving the community around, you know, churches that were overseen by teams of elders and served by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, as it says in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And they encouraged being filled with the Spirit and exercising spiritual gifts. 
and it was the presence of the Holy Spirit and his gift of prophecy in particular that really helped to shape us and gave our churches vision and direction. There was a pastor's prayer gathering in those early days where one of the leaders had a vision of a herd of elephants stampeding through the jungle. And the way ahead looked totally impenetrable, but the elephants created this path. They made a way that others could then follow on. And the opening words of the prophecy were, there are no well-worn paths ahead of you, followed by together you can accomplish more than you could ever accomplish alone. And it was on the strength of that prophecy that after some prayer and reflection, Terry Virgo and the other pastors agreed that God was speaking about working more closely together for mission. A mission that was not only to the nation, but to the nations. And to reflect that, they called themselves New Frontiers. So, you know, when people ask me, how did New Frontiers get started? I say, well, it was when a group of people got filled with the Holy Spirit and started prophesying. It's just like in the book of Acts. In fact, there are many similarities to what we read in the book of Acts because, you know, as I look back over our history and even of our own church, right, it's been prophetic words and visions that have so often led to new churches being planted and has opened doors for us into new regions. Terry Virgo tells of a vision that he once had that you can read about in his autobiographical book, No Well-Worn Paths. It was while he was at another pastor's prayer retreat uh, when he had a vision of southern England with a kind of bow superimposed over the coastline and this arrow pointing south out to the nations. And gradually the, the string and the arrow were being pulled back across the heart of the nation, gathering strength until the bow was fully stretched and the arrow was ready to be shot out. And God was showing Terry that uh, to have maximum impact in the nations, we needed to strengthen our resources in Great Britain, not just in the southeast where most of the New Frontiers churches were concentrated, but right up into the heartland. So over the next few years, that became the focus, with new churches being planted right across the UK. They'd already started gathering the growing number of churches at an annual festival that New Frontiers started, and it was called Stonely Bible Week. It took place near Coventry, right in the centre of England. People came from all over Britain and even Europe and other nations and camped in a field for a whole week where they would experience the most uh, incredible worship and Bible teaching. And every year, for 10 years, Emma and I went to Stoneleigh with the church that we had started pastoring. And each year we saw the numbers grow at Stoneleigh to almost 30,000 people. But again, it was a prophetic vision that confirmed that the next year was to be the last one. And it seemed crazy at the time because Stoneleigh was so successful. But you see, the leaders felt that God had spoken and it was confirmed by a vivid prophetic vision of a bright, eye-catching yellow field of dandelions, which suddenly turned gray as they turned to seed. And then the wind began to blow and the dandelion seed were caught up in the breeze and took flight. It was clear. The time of gathering and gaining strength and resources had come to an end. It was now time to release that arrow. It was time to go. And that was the name they gave to that final Stoneleigh. It was called 
let's go. And Terry's last message there was from Deuteronomy 32 about the eagle self-destructing its nest in order to teach its young to fly. That was 2001. And from that year onwards, literally thousands of people got sent out to take the gospel to their neighbors and to the nations. People went all over the world. Emma and I arrived here in America with our family the very next year in 2002. At the time, there were around 300 New Frontiers churches worldwide. Today, there are now thousands of churches in over 90 nations. And New Frontiers has now multiplied into a number of different apostolic spheres, each with their own name. Our church is part of a group based in the US and Mexico called Confluence Churches. And it's just one of the branches in the ever-growing family tree that is New Frontiers. Interestingly, our church is the only one in the family that's actually called New Frontiers. All the others have different names. But after Emma and I had been here 10 years and planted the church in Portsmouth, there was yet another prophetic word that God spoke to Henry Cooley and I at a conference that we both attended in St. Louis. In fact, there were a number of words that were given to us, but they all seemed to confirm the same thing, that we should merge our two sister churches to form a new church that would be stronger and better resourced to accomplish our vision. A vision of being one church with multiple congregations across the seacoast who are engaging in one mission, not just to our neighbors, but to the nations. And so we called ourselves New Frontiers. And that is our story. Here are some discussion questions for your small group. First of all, what were the DNA values that Dave Zeely talked about? Secondly, what other values shaped our church and the New Frontiers family? Third, what particularly stood out to you as being important and why? And lastly, what was your experience of church when you came to faith?